Good morning, good morning, good morning. You guys can have a seat. Hey, could you just all join me? We, we don't do this enough. Can we just thank Omid and, and also Harrison for leading us? They're just, we are truly, truly blessed to have such a talented crew. Um, well, guys, my name is Josh. I'm the pastor here. If this is your first time here, welcome. Um, we're a church for people who don't have it all figured out because we don't either. And we made that slogan because I became the pastor here at 28 years old. Uh, <laughs> but... It still rings true. So um, we are in the middle of a series called Creation, uh, and in fact, uh, it's, it's a study through the book of Genesis, but actually only the first three chapters of Genesis. So we're doing an entire five weeks on just three simple chapters, and not actually three simple chapters, but three very robust, complex chapters of Scripture in which uh, sort of outlines our entire origin story and the origin story for our entire faith. This is the first glimpse that we get of God and how God acts with creation, how God creates, and how God loves us. It's the very first time we hear God speak. It's the very first time we have an audible word speaking something into motion. And it's important that we pause and we really reflect. Um, the whole point of the series uh, is the fact that I think we normally brush past that seven-day thing because it gets messy, right? I think there's, there's almost nothing else, uh, at least in the 90s when I was growing up, that like, the church got so defensive over than like, that seven-day thing. They were like, nope, worth was made in seven real days, that's it, and if you don't believe that, you are not a Jesus follower. Um, I'm here to tell you that that is not true. <laughs> so there's a whole vast, beautiful history of reading this scripture. Uh, and it involves a poetic narrative, it involves literalism, it involves all of those things, but we get the chance to kind of pull from all fields and see that the story is actually way more gorgeous than just distilling it down to just its base little level. Uh, that there are layers to this thing that unfold and unfold and unfold and unfold. And, and the real truth of that is because it's written creatively. Uh, the scripture writers, uh, the, this God-breathed document was written in an incredibly creative and beautiful way. The language reads like a poem. It doesn't just read like a textbook. It reads in gorgeous narrative. And God creates, and every single day he creates something. At the end of it, he takes, he takes a good look at it. He pays attention and he says, it is good. And so part of creation is realizing that we are created, therefore we create things. As human beings, we create. That's what we do. So this morning, what I want to talk about uh, is how creative we are and how creative we're actually called to be. And I want to, um, I want to kind of put a little uh, sub-bar on this, because whenever I throw out creativity, uh, a lot of people go like, well, I'm not an artist, so I don't, I don't, this, this message isn't for me, or I'm not working in the arts, or I'm not working in anything creative, I'm not working in TV or music or anything like that, so what does creativity have to do for me? Well, the fact of the matter is, like, everybody has to use creativity in anything that you do. In business, in anything, in entrepreneurship, all of that comes from an extreme artistry that exists within you. Uh, and when we read the first three chapters of Genesis, we see that in that God isn't just creating for the sake of just leaving it there and creating it for him. God creates with the expectation that we are actually going to help out and keep creating, that we're going to move the ball forward. And you know this from when you were a kid, we all start out creative, right? What are we handed when we were just little children for the first thing? It was like crayons, right? Even if you were waiting for a restaurant, they'd have crayons and you'd be coloring something or you'd be making something or in school you'd do arts and crafts. Uh, and it was just a natural inclination to do things creatively, like you wanted to create. If you give a child just a little tiny action figure or something like that, whole worlds are created, 
right? Just a toy. Whole different worlds are created. I used to love, 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 love G.I. Joes. Any other guys in here love G.I. Joes or girls? G.I. Joes uh, are, are one of my, I had to really preface that fast. Um, G.I. Joes are my favorite thing in the world. Uh, and I had, I had a collection of them because every week I would do my chores and then I would get my allowance and for like $3.99 at Target you could buy the small G.I. Joes. I wasn't bougie enough for the big ones, but I could get the, like the little guys. Um, and so when I would go over to friends' houses and stuff, uh, all I wanted to do was play G.I. Joes, and most of my friends were not into this. Uh, so my friend Jackson, who was my best friend, that later fell apart, which we're going to get to in a second. Um, <laughs> Jackson uh, was a prolific Lego artist. He was so good. Uh, he created a Millennium Falcon that was like this enormous, like giant thing, just from scratch, just out of his brain. And it was actually featured in Lego Magazine. And this kid was only six years old when this happened. I mean, he was like this virtuoso genius. Now, when I went to Jackson's house, there were no G.I. Joes to play with, and I, if you know me, you know Legos would never work out. I'm not that smart. So uh, Legos were not my thing, uh, but in every Lego set, there came a tiny Lego man, right? Like, so you could have this tiny little action figure. So I would just take it upon my creative self. My creativity is more in storytelling. <laughs> uh, so I would take this little tiny action figure, and I would begin to craft worlds and narratives around G.I. Joes and the Millennium Falcon, because I was also a huge Star Wars fan. Uh, and so what I wanted to do was create a scenario, and I told Jackson this, I was like, I want to create a scenario where we, we do the Death Star thing, but the Death Star, I'm going to get really nerdy here, the Death Star is a big giant laser, you should know that, uh, big giant laser that destroys planets. So I wanted to create a, a game that we would play in which we would blow up the Millennium Falcon. Uh, this is Jackson's prized possession, and he said, absolutely not, we're not blowing up the Millennium Falcon. And I was like, okay, cool, well, let's at least create something, and then we'll blow it up. And he says, okay, we'll create something, and we'll blow it up. So I took my little action figure and we created this big tower and we blew it up. And he really had a lot of fun. Like he liked that. He, you could see like smiles are happening because we're just like kicking down tires of Legos. It was great. We're all outside having fun. And he smiles and he goes it. So I'm like, okay, there's a window of opportunity here. I was a devious uh -huh. child. And I went, you know, we could still do that with the Millennium Falcon. And you could tell there was a bit of hesitancy on his face. And he was like, ah, maybe. Like, are you sure? And I was like, I think it's gonna be awesome. We could like throw it off the roof. It's gonna be great. Um, and he's like. <laughs> Okay, yeah, I think I'm into that. We can always put it back together. So uh, he takes his precious Millennium Falcon, uh, and then I'm playing the Death Star, uh, and I said, okay, go ahead and throw it in the air, and I'll be the Death Star. And I ran forward, and he throws it in the air, and I kicked it, and it blew apart into like a thousand mini pieces. I think he was expecting it to like maybe a couple pieces would just fall off. This thing shattered in pure ecstasy and beauty. So everything is going around, uh, and you instantly see in Jackson's face our friendship is over. Like, it was like, instantly, like, you went from, like, I'm kind of okay with this to, like, what did you just convince me to do? What have you done? Right? And, and needless to say, Jackson and I um, didn't hang out too much after that. Uh, but all that to say, creativity is different in different spheres for everyone and every different thing. Sometimes it can be hurtful. Sometimes it can be wonderful. But if we know one thing about the creation story, as the Bible starts out, creation is always supposed to be able to, we're supposed to be able to look back at it and say, that's good. That's good. That's helping create new realities in the world, and that's good. But I think so often in life, we kind of get beaten down by the idea that I am not very creative, and I'm not supposed to be creating things that are supposed to really kind of make the world a better place. I'm just supposed to kind of do my thing, play my role, stay in my lane. Uh, and, and that's just such a tragedy. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that at some point in history, we started grading art. So art became this, this beautiful, subjective, awesome thing that you could pull a thousand different narratives out of. And then just one day, someone decided, we should put like A, B, C, D, and F on these things. 
And so a lot of us just didn't get good grades in that art class, and we're like, okay, no, it's not for me. But I, we cannot be scared to be creative in any of our paths. We cannot be afraid to actually push the envelope to create new worlds, to create other things that could honestly make this place better, that can make it look more like heaven. The creative process is something we're actually called into as Christians. And we don't have to be afraid to do that. I love this. Uh, at, the, at the end of the last summer, summer, last supper, um, Jesus is sitting with his disciples and he explains the bread and the wine and they have the first ever Eucharist and the first ever communion. But there's this line that we brush past all the time. And it, it goes like this. This is their first scripture of the day. Um, it says, it, this is after he's explained the wine. He says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And then this is the part that we kind of just swim by, but it's when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So that moment, the very first Eucharist, the very first communion is marked with a very creative act. They sing a song. And I want to be really clear here. In the scripture, in no way is it written down that they sang a hymn and they really nailed it. <laughs> All it says is that they sang a hymn. And if we know anything about singing, I think it's so interesting in, in church. This is one of the few places that we sing together. It's one of the real, fewest places that we sing with strangers. Maybe we do that at a baseball field or something like that. But when we sing, it's a very vulnerable thing, right? When we sing, we're putting ourselves out there in kind of a strange way. But this is a group of disciples, a group of followers of Christ, and they're all singing. They're all doing something creative, something beautiful to mark this moment and carry it through. And the reason most of us sing, the reason that throughout history songs have been important is because they cause us to remember. Good art always causes us to remember. And it has the potential to let us remember moments like that, moments like the Eucharist, and bring us right back into that moment. How many of you have a song you used to listen to like relentlessly on repeat in the car for a certain season of your life, and whenever you listen to that song, again, you're flashed right back in a second to right there? What Jesus was trying to do is not only am I going to show you communion, the bread and the wine, and this beautiful symbolic thing of like, this is my body broken for you, my blood poured out, but also we're going to mark this in a way that when you sing and when you experience this, you're going to come right back here in your heart to the table, and I'm going to be sitting here with you. That's what good art has the potential to do. And Jesus is all about creative ways. If you just look at the scripture, the ways in which people get to Jesus are largely creative, and then they're commended. So there's a story in the Bible where it's a really crowded house, much like the front of here, and, uh, and, and Linda informed me we need 25 feet of space, and I was like, we might get shut down by the fire code, but there's worse things that could happen. Um, but it was hard to get into the home, and so uh, these people who had this, their sick friend realized there's no way we're getting front, through the front of the building. There's a disruption in their life. They figured, we'll just come, we'll walk straight through, we'll get to this Jesus, and we know that he can bring healing. When they arrive, there's no way for them to get through, and they realize, it, they get discouraged, and they go, ah, oh, we've got to figure out something else. And this is where creativity comes into the story. Because you see, there's an impediment, there's a restriction, there's a disruption. And then all of a sudden, the normal pathway, the thing that you would do ordinarily, no longer works anymore. So a creative solution has to come in to play. So what do they do? They go up on the roof and they literally rip a hole in it and drop their friend down to the ground. And Jesus is thrilled. 
And another story, a woman comes through a crowded crowd, and, and she, she knows she's ritually unclean. She's been bleeding for a number of years, and she hasn't been healed. And so to touch someone when you're ritually unclean in that culture would then make that person ritually unclean. But she said to herself, if I can only touch his cloak, I know I'll be made clean. There's a disruption. The law says, no, I can't touch it. But she says, but that's the only way. And so she goes and she touches his cloak, and lo and behold, she's healed. And what's Jesus' response? Not, why did you touch me now? I'm richer than clean. It's, oh, when your faith has healed you. There's all sorts of creative, beautiful ways in which Jesus just says yes. Like, come on, yes. Reshape what you think of me. Come further into the story. Come play with me. That's the story of Jesus. And Jesus finds all sorts of creative ways to get to you, too. It's not just that he's commending us for going to find him. No, the, the beautiful part of Scripture is that there's a whole lot of this where God is seeking after you in super creative and awesome ways. With Moses, it was a burning bush, right? With Jacob, it's this ladder that he sees angels descending and going up and down from. Uh, it's wrestling with an angel. There's all sorts of this. This is stuff that never had happened before. It's creative. It's beautiful. And one of the most creative ways that Jesus gets to us is through story. And Jesus is a master storyteller. And you know, the reason I, I thought about this, the reason Jesus is so good at stories, and I think that the reason those parables are still so lasting, if you read through any of the parables or the stories that Jesus tells, you will get something new out of it almost every time you go to the text. It's just, it's beautiful. And the reason is, a story gets in us sort of like a flower unfolding in our heart. And if you tell a good story... That's something that people can ruminate on. That's something that can change as you change. You can begin to see yourself in different roles in the story. You can begin to unpack that story in different ways as different life experiences uh, come at you. But I think the reason Jesus was so good at telling those stories was because he knows all of our stories. Jesus, when he says parables, when he would craft a, a narrative, when he would tell a story, it never had to do with lofty, crazy things. The lofty and craziest that it gets is when he starts talking about like a king throws a banquet, right? But all of the stories have to do with everyday people, everyday lives. Even in that story, the real story is about the king inviting the people that no one would normally invite into the banquet. So every story, he's using everyday examples that these people would have been living in, that they would have been reacting in, that would have been working in, and he uses that as a way to get right to the point of what he's trying to get across. And he does it in a beautiful way. He doesn't do it in an obvious way. He doesn't do it in a shallow way. He does it in a really deep way. And so his disciples, these guys who are following him around, begin asking questions to him like, why, why is it that you don't just like, tell people straight up what's going on? How badly we would love it if God would just tell us straight up what's going on, right? Uh, and he responds this way. He says, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak uh, to the people in parables? He replied, because the knowledge and the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will will be given more, uh, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Now, upon first reading, and I've always struggled with this text, that seems kind of rude, <laughs> right? Jesus isn't saying, like, oh, well, I'm speaking to them in stories because they don't get it yet. But... If we look closer and we actually look at this creatively, as Jesus would have, if we look at this like a piece of art, and those parables were pieces of art, each and every one of them, what he's saying is, I'm doing this to conceal. Because if you've studied any kind of therapy stuff or you've studied any spiritual direction, the, the greatest 
way to get someone to actually experience an epiphany or change their mind is for them to experience it and realize it for themselves. That's why if you, if you sit in a session, they're always going to tell you, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? What do you think about that? Because when you come to that conclusion, your mind is actually changed. There are neural pathways that are formed, and you begin to live in a different way. But if I just tell you straight up, hey, here's all your problems, and here's what you need to do to fix them, that's never going to be as effective as if you can actually come to that conclusion yourself. So what he's saying is, though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand, he's not saying that's where they should end up and that's where the end is. He's saying, no, 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 it's good that upon first viewing they don't get it yet because they'll have to wrestle with it. They'll have to actually come to their own conclusions about it, and in that, they may be saved. They may turn and really understand what this whole kingdom thing is about. Let's look at this, this poem by uh, Wendell Berry. This should show you the way that the difference between just like literally saying something out loud and then actually like using art to get to the point of things. Um, this is called uh, The Greatest Work. It says, it may be that when we no longer know what to do, we've come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. Just let that sit for a minute. The impeded stream is the one that sings. Now, <clears throat> if I was going to use literal language to explain this, I could say, it's the tough stuff in your life that make it bad, not good, but once it gets good, then you sing. <laughs> That's the impeded stream, right? But the impeded stream, this gorgeous picture, an image of a stream that has things in between where the water can't get straight through, but there are rocks, there are bumps in the road, there are sticks there, and as a result, the stream actually makes sound and noise and sing. And in our lives, as we walk through and we encounter the tough stuff, the hard stuff, we need to understand that God uses that and literally makes us sing. Our stories sing because of the stuff that gets in the way, not because of the point A to point B, but because of the journey along the way. That's what good, powerful art can do. And you could just sit and think about the impeded stream as the one that sings for as long as you want, and new things are going to begin to unfold new ways of thinking. Jesus teaches his disciples in that moment that here's how you pay attention. Here's how you get people to pay attention. You tell good stories that then leave them questioning, not answering, but questioning. What, what is going on here? So there's another moment that the disciples come to Jesus and they say, um, we, we see that you're experiencing this different relationship with God than we are, and, and you're praying, and you're going alone to pray. And so as he's going, he's, he's praying, and as he finishes praying, uh, they came up and asked him a very interesting question. And, and this is where we get the Lord's Prayer. But right after the Lord's Prayer, he combines it with a story. And so he's teaching his disciples this. So let, let's, let's unpack this a little bit. Um, this is Jesus teaching on prayer. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. So What's happening here is that one of his disciples is asking him a very standard religious question. Basically, what's our language? So John, who he's referring to, is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had an enormous following. In fact, when, when historical scholars look at the text, they think that they had to mention John the Baptist because if they didn't, it wouldn't, like the people who were in that area at that time would not give Jesus the time of day. John was an enormous force to be reckoned with. And so what they're saying is, John has this enormous ministry. You're starting to have this enormous ministry. They have a language. They do baptisms. They do all of this kind of stuff. What's our language? Teach us to pray. 
And, and a rabbi at that time, or a teacher at that time, or a Pharisee at that time, would have a ton of prayers to teach. Basically, that would be the moment where you just roll out the scroll and it goes all the way to the end of the room because there's a blessing or a prayer for literally everything. There's a blessing for waking up in the morning. There's a blessing for washing your hands. There's a blessing for eating dinner. There's a blessing for greeting a friend. There are prayers for every single interaction, and they're all linked with a specific time. And so when Jesus teaches them how to pray, look what we have here. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven lines. That's it. That's all he gives. He doesn't unroll the scroll. He doesn't give them a, a whole litany of different prayers. He simply says this. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, what's even more creative about this, and we could just go, yeah, that's the Lord's Prayer. That's super awesome. Uh, but this is the first time the disciples are hearing this. Uh, and so there's a number of things that, they, that light bulbs will just be going off in their heads about. First of all, this is not a personal prayer. And so often we view it as something we're just supposed to pray personally to God. But if you look in there, there's no I in the Lord's Prayer. It's all us, our. It's a corporate prayer. So it's literally saying, as you pray, be thinking of your brothers and sisters around you. Be thinking of your neighbors. Be thinking of, of your enemies. Be thinking of your friends. Be thinking of the us, not just the I. And then what's fascinating is this little text here, this prayer, is not really translated into Greek. They leave it in the Aramaic. So Aramaic was actually the language that Jesus spoke. He didn't speak Hebrew. Well, he, he probably did in some prayers and stuff that he did. But the common language of the workers of the day was Aramaic. And this prayer is in Aramaic. So what he's telling the disciples is pray in your own language, in your own verse. How often do we walk in a church and we bow our heads and then whoever's praying feels the need to use the biggest vocabulary words they had and they haven't used since the SATs in high school, right? Like there, there's, a, there's a certain expectation that you're supposed to wax eloquently as you and, and poetically as you pray. But Jesus' whole point here is like, no, no, no. Prayer can be in your own language. You find the words that you need to say. You pray in your language and God is going to hear you. You don't need all the big fancy stuff. You don't need all the, the corners. You don't need all the big microphones. All you need to know is that he hears you in your own voice. And then to make it even more personal, that word father is actually the word Abba, which is the closest thing to like Papa or Dad that they had in that language. Meaning like it's a really personal father, not just a father way out there, but this father that is right next to you, and as you pray in the way that you are, you're supposed to pray exactly how you would talk to your dad or your father. This would have been mind-blowing for the disciples who was to spend their entire lives memorizing these complex blessings for every single situation, and Jesus is stripping away all of that, and he's saying, no, 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 prayer is a conversation between you and the divine, between you and your father, God, and you don't need to put on a show about it. You just need to pray in your own way. And so that's fine. That's showing them, right? That's saying, here you go. But then he couples it with a story because that's not going to land on its own. So he tells them this story right after that. Um, then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight, and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine came on a journey, 
uh, and has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose uh, the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed, and I can't get up and give you anything. What, what he's outlining here seems pretty normal for us. If my neighbor comes and knocks on my door at midnight, I'm not getting up. <laughs> I'm just not. I'll see it on my little ring device, and I'll be like, that's, that's my neighbor, and I'm not doing anything. What's he doing at midnight at my door? However, at this point in history, there's a thing called desert hospitality. Uh, and I, I think it's something we could learn an enormous amount from. In fact, I'd love to do a sermon series one day just on hospitality, uh, because their hospitality was radical hospitality. Basically, if someone showed up at your door at midnight and, and, and said, hey, please help me, let me in, the night is an incredibly dangerous time in that desert environment. You are not supposed to be traveling at night. There are thieves. It gets really cold. There's not a lot of water everywhere. You're, you're, you're putting yourself out against the elements. In fact, if someone knocked on your door at all, the initial reaction was swing the door wide open, give them the best food that you can find, have them sit at your table, and you take care of them like they are the most honored guests in the world. That was desert spirituality. So when this guy knocks and he says, hey, I have a friend who's just come and it's, it's midnight, it's in the middle of the night, I'm, I'm literally, like, he would have been like praising God that this person is still alive. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he made it. And, and I don't have anything to offer him, which would have been an extremely shameful thing. And so we could read this in one way, which would be like the neighbor comes and he says, I need three loaves of bread. And you're like, why are you taking my bread? But... We're also forgetting that in this desert hospitality, every single family in these little tribes were linked to each other. So it wasn't the same thing as like, I'm embarrassed because I don't have any food, can you bail me out? It was, if I don't give this person food, we're all gonna be embarrassed. This is gonna bring great shame to our entire city or town, so I need you to help. And what's even funnier about this is in, in the ruralist societies, which Jesus is probably talking about, they would only have one or two outdoor ovens. And they would cook the daily bread in those outdoor ovens. And so this neighbor would clearly see that this other neighbor had been cooking bread all day and would have enough bread to spare. And so imagine this as Jesus is talking about prayer. You are that neighbor who's embarrassed. I need something. And God is that, 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 that person who's inside the home. And I think a lot of our prayer life, a lot of this conversation with God centers around the fact that we think we are banging on the door of an angry neighbor, of a neighbor that say, no, I'm asleep, kids are asleep, get out of here. But that's not the way that God works. The story goes on. And Jesus, uh, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Basically, Jesus has just given them the Lord's Prayer, and then he's done this really cool little ninja thing where he's now taken prayer outside of time. Because this, this neighbor's coming at midnight. So he's saying there's no time that is inappropriate to come to God in prayer. There is no time. And the one who is bold enough to knock is going to get that answer. So he's saying to them, you don't need to worry about the God on the other side. What you need to do is expect that God to fling that door wide open and give you all the bread that you will need for the day. Give us this day our daily bread. And he links it all together in that way.
We can pray any time that we need to because God is always there to answer the door. And see, what Jesus is doing rather artistically is he's breaking down the aesthetic of God. He's breaking down people's common notion of who God is and what God does. The very notion that God or that Jesus is Christ means that Jesus is bringing God and the divine into situations that God was never supposed to be in, right? Eating at the table of a tax collector or a sex worker or, or, or touching people that are unclean and healing on the Sabbath. These are all places God's not supposed to be. And yet Jesus continually, just in his life, is breaking down these barriers. Here's something a little mind-blowing that I, I thought of this week. Uh, let's, you, can, you can judge if it's mind-blowing. It was mind-blowing to me. If Jesus, if we believe that he is the divine, that he is the Christ, that he is the Savior, uh, then we have to look at every single conversation in which people talk with him as prayer. Every single time Jesus is talking with one of his disciples or with someone, that's a prayer. That's a prayer. And it's the people that were bold enough to rip the roof off or go and touch the garment that he goes, yes, 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 yes. That's exactly what I want. I desire to be in relationship with you. I want to know you. And so I want to break down any barrier that's going to keep us apart. He's changing the way that we view God and the aesthetic that God has. Now, something in creativity, if you're an artist of any kind, you know that aesthetics matter immensely. This could go into like interior design work, this could go into paintings. Aesthetics are, are built into us. The way that we look at things actually matters a ton. And so the goal of a good creative piece or act is to create something that is aesthetically pleasing because at our very core, uh, that's what we desire. We, we go towards the stuff that's aesthetically beautiful. Um, you know, it's because like, there are literally people that will like, it, it drives us to go like, if you see a building that's painted the wrong way, people will say stuff like, I hate that building. <laughs> now, I don't hate a lot of things, but if something's painted weird, it's not going to drive me to loathe something, but that's the way that aesthetics uh, please us. Let's just look at this. Um, I don't know if you guys were ever on MySpace, uh, but this is what MySpace looked like in the beginning. That's aesthetically insulting. Like it, it's it's very. And then and then beyond that, when they finally got their act together and they moved it to this, uh, which is the next slide, please. Um, we have something that looks uh, a little bit nicer, but then you have this dude Tom, who's automatically your friend and is just like forcing himself into your network. It's not aesthetically pleasing. We desire to see things that are beautiful, that are neat, that are gorgeous. This happens with, with bees and flowers. Flowers attract bees because of their aesthetic beauty. The brightest color flowers get pollinated because they are the brightest color. You see, in a weird way, aesthetics kind of drive life. The way things are drives life and makes things beautiful. It causes us to like pause and wonder. I, I'm always fascinated when I'm biking through. I, I usually do like a little bike ride down uh, to Venice Beach and back um, if my bike hasn't been stolen, which has happened four times in Santa Monica. But anyway, uh, when I'm riding down there, I'm always fascinated by looking to the right and then the left. Like if you're riding sort of towards Marina del Rey, there's the ocean over here, uh, and then there's the Venice boardwalk over here. Uh, and it's such a contrast. <laughs> so the boardwalk is an inherently ugly place. It just doesn't look that aesthetically pleasing, and yet you look to the right, and there's this beautiful, gorgeous ocean. And, and I'm fascinated with the group of people that are there. There's everyone from like tech billionaires to, uh, to people who are experiencing homelessness, to people who have drug problems, to uh, teenagers who are just there, to, to weed shops, to everything you can imagine. And it's all there because that ocean, for some reason, uh, calls out to us. Like we all enjoy being there, <laughs> maybe for different reasons, but the main reason is it's aesthetically 
gorgeous. It's beautiful. Good aesthetics and good creativity causes us to just like stop and stare. Stop and stare and just look. This is true on Instagram, too. If you're just like scrolling through, there are certain things that are just going to catch your eye. Here's something I've been, uh, I've been looking at. Like for, like, I'll, I'll stop and I'll pause and I'll go, like, oh my god, five minutes has been going by. Uh, but this is an invention uh, by a, an artist named Theo Janssen. And it was just one of those things that I was like scrolling by and I saw them and I instantly was like, why am I so fascinated with this? And you know, it's like five minutes later, I'm like, why am I still watching videos of Theo Jensen? They don't, they're not really for anything, they just kind of move. Like, <laughs> they're beautiful, but all they do is they move. And this artist, Theo Jensen, creates these. Uh, but here's what's even more fascinating. When I looked up Theo Jensen, thinking like he's probably this really prolific, like kind of awesome guy. It must be a genius to create these crazy things. Uh, no, I learned that he's actually just a crazy person. So this is Theo Jensen, if we move. Uh, onto that next slide. This is Theo. Um, and on his website, uh, I learned that he is truly convinced that these creatures are living and that he's creating living creatures. Uh, this is what he says uh, on the front page of his website. Since 1990, I have been occupied creating new forms of life. Not pollen or seeds, but plastic yellow tubes are used as the basic material, uh, sorry, I can't see because of the lights there, of this new nature. I make skeletons that are able to walk on the wind so they don't have to eat. Over time, these skeletons have become increasingly better at surviving the elements, such as storm and water, and eventually, this is the crazy part, I want to put these animals out in herds on the beaches so they will live their own lives. The man is a psychopath, and yet, I'm really fascinated. He also did this. Uh, he sent out this UFO-looking thing uh, that was powered by helium, and then it glowed. This was the first thing he ever did. Uh, and it caused this insane ruckus. He lives in uh, Amsterdam because, of course, every crazy person lives in Amsterdam. Um, uh, it caused this crazy ruckus. He filled it with helium. He shot it up into the air. And this, this is what he had to say about that. Uh, he said, since 1947, Dutch law has decreed that this strand beast yellow tube to be used in conducted uh, electricity cables. He's talking about PVC pipes here. Um, uh, so it's very cheap. I used this tubing as early as 1979 to make a flying saucer which flew over Delft and caused a near riot. It was four meters wide and a little, it was lifted by helium. Sound and light came out of it. At the moment we launched it, the sky was a bit hazy because the saucer was black. It made a large contrast with the light background. That is why some people thought it had a halo around it. You just see a black disc without any depth. Hard to estimate the height. Police told in a television interview it was as large as the nuclear reactor in Delft. We never found it again. It disappeared in the clouds and probably landed in Belgium. But don't worry, a film of the UFO is on DVD and available in the web shop. So he may be crazy, but he's also enterprising. This man, Amen. crazy. But so he's insane, and yet, if we're gonna go back to that video, I can't stop watching these things move around on the beach. Like, I, I'm, I'm drawn, even though I know that the inventor is a crazy person, I'm still aesthetically like, oh, I can, I can just sit here and kind of brain out for a little bit, right? Aesthetics cause us to do crazy things. Here's a really fascinating, this is the, do we have the picture of the Holland, Holland, Holland Tunnel there? Uh, so in, um, it, at Christmas time, the Holland Tunnel is always decorated like this, uh, and someone uh, named Chris uh, Weisfield uh, put up this picture on the internet that they caused an extreme stir because he was the first person, at least online, to point out how absurd the placement of that tree is. Uh, if you look, the holland, the wreath is over the O, this is Chris, and then the other tree is over that N, but it should be over that A. 
And so he, he posts this thing online, and before he knew it, about a couple minutes later, over 15,000 people had replied to this Facebook post. It went incredibly viral, and people began to go crazy. And then he got letters from people uh, or, or messages on Facebook from people who, who hated it as well. One person went as far to say as, whenever it's Christmas time and these decorations go up, I go all the way around the city and take the train because I cannot stand. It drives me insane to see this. So what he did is he's like, okay, let's start a petition with the city to get this changed. Budweiser even got involved. They changed their logo. I don't know if you can see that. Uh, to say we're with them, and it needs to be changed. This is how important aesthetics are. So Chris creates this entire fund. He goes to the, uh, to the, the Port Authority and literally petitions for this, and lo and behold, it gets changed to this, which is much more pleasing to our eye, right? This is why creativity matters. This is why beauty matters, because at the very core of who we are, the, we can't help it. We're drawn to beautiful things. So in the, in the case of Chris, he noticed a disruption. He noticed there's a problem here, and it's driving me insane. And so what did he do? He found a creative solution to fix it. He, had, he could not go, he couldn't grab a ladder and go like change the sign. He had to figure out a creative way to do it. And so what he did is he empowered an entire community, and they came around and they signed petitions, and it got changed. It was creatively disrupted. When we go to the very first page of scripture, we learn that in the beginning was the word, right? We learn that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the very next picture we see is that the spirit was hovering over the waters. And that line is immensely important because what the waters represented was pure mystery, chaos, fear. People didn't understand water. They didn't understand what's underneath it. And so it became a symbol in their time of fear, of disruption, of chaos, of craziness. And so to the ancient reader, the ancient listener of this text, what it really stands out is, is in the beginning, God hovered over all of that chaos and said, look, we can do something with this, with chaos, with craziness we can create something beautiful out of the mystery. And Jesus carries on this crazy tradition on the cross. He flips the cross from something that was an instrument of death, and he brings salvation of it. He looks at the cross, and he says, look, we can do something with this. We can, we can make something beautiful out of this. There are just two ways we can hold things. We can look at a disruption or an interruption or or a terrible thing that comes into our lives, and we can say, uh, it can just wound me. I'll just be hurt by that. Or we can carry on the tradition of this Jesus in which we follow, which says, when I see something that wounds, when I see something that's hurtful, I'm going to make it into something beautiful. I'm going to use it. I'm going to put it to work in your life so that it actually means something. See, Jesus literally uh, gives the human experience meaning by stepping into it. We can make something very, very chaotic, ugly, disruptive, and awful, beautiful, if we can just simply give it meaning. If we can make it mean something in our lives, then it's not a waste. And what Jesus does is he sees all of humanity, God sees all of humanity, and Jesus steps into it, thus giving it meaning because he participates with it. He works with it. 
And this is one of the major reasons I still trust Christ with my life, is because he's actually here and he walked with us through it. He gave it meaning. He saw death. He experienced death. He saw hurt. He saw pain. He saw all the whole breadth of human experience, and he made it mean something. I would not trust anybody on any topic if they haven't stepped into it. Let's get political for a second. If you're a Republican and don't know any Democrats, I would not like to hear your policies on, on politics, vice versa. If you're a Democrat and you have no Republican friends, I'm not really interested in what you have to say about the other side. If you're straight and you have no gay friends, I'm really not interested in what you have to say about that subject. Unless we are willing to do the Christ thing and actually step in and participate in the story and actually live with the people that are around us, we don't have much to say. Part of good creativity and beautiful living is stepping into other people's stories to understand that and give it meaning in our own lives so that then we can walk away with something to say. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for, um, for being a creative uh, wonder. Thank you for uh, instilling us the ability to create as well, to be co-creators with you, to, uh, to help shape this world around us, to, as you say it in your, your prayer, um, as on earth as it is in heaven, to bring heaven down here a little bit more every day. I thank you for the people in this room. I thank you for our stories. Uh, they are a work of your creation, and you are the master storyteller, so our stories are a part of that, and I love that we get to come together and tell a bigger story together, and that you are driving that process.